everyone. This is Regina. Hi, horse lovers. This is Lynn. This week on the Horse Industry Podcast. So, Gina, we have started down the path of crime with the Horse Industry Podcast. Mm -hmm. We're crime junkies. (laughs) But with a horse twist. With a horse twist. And I don't know that we intentionally plan to do so many episodes on crimes in the horse industry, but we can't help ourselves. We can't. And it's very interesting. For example, I mean, we all heard about Rita Crundwell. Everybody heard about Rita Crundwell. But I didn't realize there were so many other cases or topics out there. I mean, again, you naively live your life and you just assume that everybody's on the up and up, but holy moly, Helen Voorhees Brock. Yeah. And I mean, this happened when you and I were in our in our teens and just getting started. So we didn't pay attention to the news. I think I was still an egg. <laughs> well, but at the end, when the yes. when everything went to yeah. trial and yeah. then went to jail. So yeah. whatever, an egg. <laughs> Actually, I think I was probably... I was a little kid. Okay. So we're talking about the heir to the Brock Candy fortune, Helen Brock. So Helen was born in Ohio, grew up just like a normal Midwestern girl, not a lot of money, hardworking parents. She was beautiful. She was married and divorced by the time she was 21. So Helen spent about 17 years, just kind of wandering through life. She didn't have any children at that time. Nope. I read that she actually looked like Rita Hayworth. She was very striking, very beautiful. She received a lot of attention from men, so she didn't have any problem with that. But good for her that she took some time to kind of find her way. Nice way to spin that. Yeah. (laughs) In her mid to late 30s, she moved to Florida, and she was working as a cigarette girl. Or it was a hat check girl, a hat check girl, which is also a cigarette girl. Yeah. Or there's a lot of other names for what she was doing, but it's not a high paying job. No, she was a she was at a fancy club. Yeah, she was mingling with very wealthy people, but she had your basic, you know, minimum wage. Working for tips. Yeah. She was cute, working for tips. Yep. And the dirty old men that were there to dinner (laughs) with their wives probably gave her great tips. So speaking of which, Frank Brock was there, and that's where he first met her. And I read where she had – he was arguing with his current wife at that time. Wife number two. Yep. And so – Guess what? A year later, he's divorced, and he's with Helen, and they're having a blast, a great life. I mean, money, horses. Every report I read, and actually, I read the book. It's called Hot Blood, The Money, The Brock Heiress, and The Horse Murders by Ken Inglade. And in there, he basically said they really loved each other. And every source I've read... Frank and his wife really loved each other. They had a great marriage. He was a bit older than she was, but they were happy. She was having fun. They were having fun. They would go to horse races. She loved jewelry. They lived in a mansion in Illinois. And then they also had a condo, they said, or a home in Florida. Mm-hmm. So they they went back and forth. I mean, she was living probably her dream life. Yeah. And Frank was having a blast with his younger Woman. He was. And so Frank was, Frank's dad actually started the candy company. It was E.J. Brock and Sons Candy Company. And then Frank's dad died. And then shortly after that, his brother died. And so Frank 
inherited the company. And then Frank had two men that he was really particularly loyal to. The one was Everett Moore, who was a CPA. And he he ended up being Helen Brock's full-time financial consultant when Frank passed away. And then the other one was Jack Matlick, who was kind of a handyman for Frank. And he becomes a central focus of the story later on. So yes, I don't like him. Yeah, well, Frank died in 1970, and Helen actually ended up keeping them on, and originally, she let Matlick go, and then brought him back to be a handyman, but then he kind of made himself super useful, and eventually morphed into what she called as a, called him as a houseman. I've never heard that term before. No, but we also are not bazillionaires. (laughs) (laughs) An interesting part about the description of Helen was that they often called her kind of a a reclusive. Yeah, eccentric, eccentric, dog lady. Yeah. And you know what? Lynn and I were talking and I just... I, from reading things, I just didn't get that sense. Maybe she was reclusive because she didn't need to live a normal life and go to the grocery store and get her own gas and get her own stuff. Well, and the reclusive comes from the elite rich people of Chicago. Right. That's, that's not where she came from. Correct. She didn't enjoy those people. Right. And so she just didn't hang with them. Yeah. Now, she had friends. It talked about how she loved to talk on the telephone. She was on the phone with her friends all the time. Like that was her main source of engagement was talking on the phone with her friends. She also had friends down in Florida. So after Frank died, she would go down to Florida regularly and she had some friends that she would call and they would come and pick her up at the airport. So she was very routine based. She had certain people she talked to all the time. So from the reports, they call her reclusive, but I just I just didn't get that. She just didn't need to engage with the world. So I wouldn't tag her as being reclusive. No, I think that that was, I think that was incorrect. I agree. So that's, a, that's our take on it. So Helen was, she loved Frank, but she was also a little lonely, which makes sense. I mean, she's got all this money. She's got this great big mansion. She, she's doing her thing, but she was lonely. And so, right, because they were busy people. When they were together, they were always, Busy. So, right? So, she's lost her husband, and now she's a little bored. She's a little bored. And so, her friend, Helen Hirschman, actually ran into this man named Richard Bailey. And Richard Bailey met this Helen Hirschman at a car wash. And, of course, Richard Bailey is a complete womanizing, gigolo, smooth-talking, golden-tongue, he could sell anybody. Yes, he did describe himself as having a golden tongue. And he could talk <laughs> a woman into anything. And he had a history of dating older women. He was a gigolo. And I had to say that word because never in my life did I think that I would have a place for gigolo <laughs> in my vocabulary. But I, it's kind of a funny word. Yeah. So anyway, so one of the interviews from Richard Bailey, it said, you know, Richard, some of these women are kind of older and unattractive. And he said, you know, every woman has one good quality. (laughs) And you just have to focus on that one good characteristic and just ignore the rest (laughs) and enjoy the money. And that's what he did. He was, I, I can't imagine going through life being that much of a faker. So he would find these women and then he would convince them that he was in love with them. He would sweet talk them with 
flowers and he had fancy cars. I'm not sure how he paid for them, but he had all the, he had the image. He wore a pinky ring and he completely pulled the wool over these women's eyes. And then literally it was like two days in, he would be like, Hey, I have these horses. I need to seal the deal. You know, can you write me a check? And these women felt, they felt appreciated and loved and focused on. And they're like, Oh, okay. And they believed him. They trusted him. They trusted him. They totally trust it, which goes back to the previous episode that we've talked about with the crime is that so oftentimes these crimes are, are committed because of trust between people. He was exciting. These women, so they're, they're widowed and Richard came in and he was handsome and he was treating them like they were important. And they thought, you know, I, all right, I'll buy this horse. I mean, how many of us have been in that situation where like, maybe we shouldn't, we know we shouldn't spend the money. <laughs> But the trainer's oh, like, oh, this yeah, is a good, a good one. We can win everything with yeah, this one. Yeah. Like, let's do it. And yeah. they'd be like, okay, let's do it. Let's yeah. do it. And so he would, I mean, way, way sell these horses. I, I mean, he'd spend like 10000 or 18000 and sell them for much more. Mm-hmm. And if the horses weren't successful or didn't win – some of them might die. Oh. So we're going to talk about that in a little bit too. Oh, and that, that is, that makes you sick. And that's his, how his connection to the Jang gang actually kind of connects. But let's go back real quick. So Richard Bailey met Helen Brock. And it's interesting because in some sources, they kind of describe them as having a love affair, a romantic relationship. Helen was enamored with Richard Bailey. But I'm going to tell you, again, like the reclusive thing, I don't get the sense that she really was that blinded to him. I think she literally just enjoyed his company. Yeah. I mean, they came from a similar background. Yes. And one of the stories that I read, it just basically said they came from a similar background. And yeah. she's like, you know what? Look, I've got a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Let's have fun and enjoy it together. Yep. Yep. And surprisingly, in the book that I read, it wasn't one of those things where he directly went to sell her horses. She, they were down in Florida and she looked at him and kind of said, you know what? I, my husband Frank, he enjoyed the racehorses. Maybe I'll get, maybe I'll get some horses. It's something that you and I can enjoy together. And so, of course, Richard Bailey went ding, 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 ding. I got a fresh one. (laughs) And so she went ahead and purchased some horses. But before we go any further with that, I really do think it's important to note that I don't get the sense that Helen was naive. I really think that Helen had a sense of who and what Richard Bailey was. And everything that I have seen Really, it's not clear how romantic, you know, literally romantic their relationship was. I think that they just enjoyed each other's company. And then in watching a YouTube documentary on the topic and also reading the book, Richard Bailey pretty much said, why, why, why would I get rid of her? Why would I get rid of her? I was enjoying her company. She was enjoying mine. He said, you know, when she went missing, I thought that she actually was dumping me for somebody else. 
watching, I mean, he sucked me in. They, mm-hmm. I mean, I saw them interview him when he was 90 years old. Mm-hmm. And when I watched that interview, he sucked me in. I'm yeah. like, oh, we will. In he's fact, a good guy. That's <laughs> probably why he swindled so many women. Lynn, he's not a good guy. <laughs> okay. All right. But we will actually link that YouTube documentary in our show notes so that you guys can watch it and see what you think too. But they just seem to really enjoy each other. So Throughout their relationship, at one point, the day that Helen went missing, she had gone to the Mayo Clinic. Helen was, so Helen was a little eccentric. Now, I don't think she was reclusive, like they said, but she was eccentric. And a couple of the eccentricities, she was very obsessed with her health. And the other one was that she did this thing called automatic writing, which did you read about that? Yeah, I did read about it. She just basically, whatever came into her mind, she wrote it down. Do you kind of want to do that? No. (laughs) (laughs) I want to try it. I guess she would like go into a dark room and just kind of shut down her mind and she would just start writing. My hand would go off the paper. It it would make no sense. Yeah. That, that part of it is a bit, a bit strange. And and that's going to come up as we, as we talk through this. But I guess the part that strikes me about, um, right before she went missing, she went to the Mayo Clinic for a routine checkup. And she went there because she wanted to live. Yeah. This is a woman that was enjoying life yes. and she wanted to live. And her gigolo boyfriend, <laughs> the gal- actually they referred to him as the galloping jiggle. She had a galloping gigolo mm-hmm. waiting for her in Florida. They ballroom danced together. Yeah, like they just yeah. at New Year's Eve, she had invited him to New York and they were at the Waldorf, Waldorf, I can't even say that, Waldorf Asteria. Whatever. A story. <laughs> yeah, we have not been, but you know what we're trying to say. Yeah. So they'd been there dancing and enjoying themselves and, and having a great time. She picked up the whole bill for him. Yeah. So again, And they had separate rooms. Yeah. Yeah. So he's not even having to... No. They just hang right. out. They're, they're friends. Just, they're just friends. She's paying for it. So they're supposed to meet in Florida. And yeah. then what happens, Gina? Well, she never makes it. And here's the here's the big question about... Did Helen even make it back from Minnesota? So on February 17th of 1977, basically Helen Brock was given a clean bill of health. She had stayed at the Mayo Clinic for five days and she stopped at a boutique on the way out and she bought an alabaster soap dish, a powder box and some towels at a little boutique at the hospital. Now, who buys stuff at boutiques at places like that. People with a lot of money that just like, oh, that's cute. Don't you walk by like when you go up to Brunson Hospital or something and you're like, who shops there? But then you always go in there and and you buy something. It's kind of like the Cracker Barrel. I never think I'm going (laughs) to buy anything at Cracker Barrel. And they always have really cute stuff at Cracker Barrel. They do. Okay. So anyway, so Helen stopped at the boutique and she bought some items. She paid for it with her American Express card. At 10 a.m., she completed the transaction, 10 a.m. ish, and she looked at the clerk and she, she was trying not to be impatient. This is what, cause actually I think she got to the boutique before it even opened and she was anxious to get, pick up some stuff and get on the road. And she was not, I don't think the book really gave the impression that she was maybe that pleasant with the clerk there. And the clerk was trying to, you know, hurry up so she can get this stuff done, wrap things up. And the clerk said that the clerk said that Helen Brock said to her, you know, please hurry. My houseman is waiting for me. 
Now, it wasn't clear to the clerk if she meant the housemaid. That was a big eye roll if I was the clerk. <laughs> I know, right? My housemaid. Man. Well, and that's why the clerk said that she actually remembered Helen Brock, because it was such a weird term. And in that book by Ken Inglade, the clerk said that she said it over to herself a few times thinking, I got to remember that term. So yeah, she said her houseman was waiting for her. Well, it wasn't clear if the houseman was waiting for her there in Minnesota or if the houseman was waiting for her in Chicago. Now, this is total conjecture on my part. If the houseman was waiting for her in Chicago, I would have said, can you please hurry? I have a flight to catch. Right. If the houseman was waiting for her right there in Minnesota, I would say, can you please hurry? My houseman is waiting for me. Right. Right? That, There's I some... found that strange, too. I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah. That was, that was strange to me, too. Yeah. Now, if you got off the plane in Chicago, you would say, hurry, can you please hurry up and get my luggage? My houseman's waiting for me. I mean, so in my mind, that phrase, and clearly I'm not a detective, but that phrase said to me that that houseman was waiting for her in Minnesota. And then there was a detective that said that they were not even sure... She got on the flight. They think that there was a person who, quote unquote, took her place. It was like a stand-in person. So her flight was, her ticket was used, but it wasn't actually her. That somebody, what's the term I'm looking for? Pretended to be her. Impersonated her. Impersonated her. So someone impersonated her on the flight. Now, back then, there wasn't the stringent identification practices that we have. They had DNA like she did. Right. (laughs) So one of the theories is that she was actually picked up in Minnesota and someone impersonated her on the flight. And I guess between Minnesota and where she lived in the Chicago area was real remote. And something happened to her on the way back. So anyway, so that was the last time anybody saw her. That was literally and truly the last time anyone saw Helen Brock alive. She disappeared. She disappeared. a trace. Without a trace. And we're going to try it. Like, this is a confusing, from this point on, it gets confusing to follow this mm-hmm. because there's so many creepy characters oh. that come into all of this. Oh. And the fact that the reason that I believe she ended up back at her home mm-hmm. is because... Jack Matlick, the houseman, house mm-hmm. in the weeks that she's missing, like early on when she's missing, mm-hmm. he repaints and recarpets the front room of her house. If your boss is missing, mm-hmm. you don't know where she's at. Shouldn't you be looking for her versus... Painting and, and recarpeting. Well, and there's some other disparities in the norm when it comes to Jack Matlick. So first of all, he picked her up in a Jeep. He usually picked her up in her lavender Rolls Royce or her pink Mercedes, which by the way, pink was her favorite color. And you know, the Brock candy, it's kind of purple and pink. Mm-hmm. She convinced her husband to make that the official color of can- Aww, Brock candy. They had such a happy life they together. They did. They did. So anyway, Matlick picked her up in the Jeep, which was totally off the norm. Usually he picked her up in a nice vehicle. So uh, they say. 
Right. So they say because not only did he do the carpet and the painting, he fully shampooed the interior of her car. Right. So I called BS on him picking her up in a Jeep. (laughs) So then Matlick says that she spent a few days at home getting ready to leave for her time in Fort Lauderdale. And she was super excited about going to Fort Lauderdale. And when she was home, she was writing checks. And somewhere along the line, moving a trunk or something, she hurt her hand. Now, the theory is that he said that she hurt her hand for two reasons. Number one, if anybody found any blood anywhere, that's why. And number two, he wrote a bunch of checks to himself and pretty much everybody thinks that it was him that signed them. Right. And then he also went to her safe deposit box and removed cash and jewelry. Exactly. While she's missing. While she's While missing, she's he's stealing her blind. He didn't, he did not, he had no thought that she was coming back. 100%. So the other pieces that didn't make a lot of sense to people was that number one, if she did hurt her hand, her friends said that she would have sought medical treatment. She was, she was concerned about her health. She just got back from the mail. If she had hurt her hand that badly, she would have actually sought treatment and not let Matt give her an ice pack. I'm making that up, but who knows? But she would have not self-treated it at home. Secondly, the flight that she was supposed to, Matlick says that she was home the whole weekend. And then he took her to the airport for a super early flight to Fort Lauderdale. Well, there's two problems with that. Number one, she hated getting up early. She did not, everybody knew she was a sleeper in her. She did not want to get up early. Sleeper in her? I made that up. Kind of like Romo from the previous episode. <laughs> <laughs> so she was a sleeper in her and the flight getting her to the airport at seven was not what she would have done. Not only that, she didn't take any luggage. And they said that she usually traveled like a baseball team. She was, she was famous for taking tons and tons and tons of luggage everywhere she went. I have this vision of the Titanic movie where they show up with cars and cars of luggage, but she carried, she always went with luggage. She did not go with luggage on this one. Well, in the documentary that I watched, Mm -hmm. one of them, it showed photos of her. So get this, Mm -hmm. listeners, her bags were found in the house full of all the clothes that she would have taken to Florida. And they're beautiful leather cases. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess, I mean, that's the wealth that comes from it. But there's these beautiful leather cases full of her clothes that are packed to go to Florida. She wanted to go. So first of all, that tells me she did come back from Minnesota. Good point. And she did pack her bags and something happened before she left. Now, the only place I might be wrong is maybe she had everything packed before she went to Minnesota, knowing that it was going to be a quick turnaround. True. That's a good point, too. So then the other thing that they pointed out that was a little head scratching is that she walked into the airport coatless. I mean, this is like in February and she, and the Matlick said that she looked at him and said, I'm not going to need my fur in Florida. So here, take it back. Makes no sense. Absolutely no sense. Also, she had a number of her friends. Now, they say she's reclusive, but as we've said, she loved to talk on the phone with her friends. Her friends tried to call her a number of times that weekend that she was home, and they never got her. They could never get through. And Matt Lacoy said, oh, well, she's not available. She's in the shower. Nobody ever got through to her that weekend. Liar. <laughs> Plus, she never made any outgoing phone calls either. So a woman who spent a lot of her 
free time on the telephone chit-chatting wasn't chit-chatting. Another one of her friends supposedly stopped by, and that friend ran into Matlick and then also saw a man that she did not know there. And they said that Helen was not available. And so literally no one saw Helen alive or dead since that 10 a.m. boutique shopping at the Mayo Clinic. So this is where the mafia comes into this. Okay, so now we have Helen Brock, who's missing. And so one of the first things that happens is that Matlick calls Moore the CPA. Now, in the book by Inglade, Hot Blood, it says that the CPA was like, what are you bugging me for? I mean, she's an independent woman. She's got the resources to travel. I'll I'll deal with you in the morning. And then he also called Helen's brother. And the brother, again, was like, what do you, what's the big deal? She's an independent woman. I don't talk to her all the time. Who knows what's going on, but she's a grown up. So I think we lost days. Mm-hmm. I think days were lost. She was missing and several days. Like, I think her friends in Florida were worried because she always calls for a ride. She's not answering the phone. So it's just that that period is a little bit cloudy as to who really reacted to the fact that this poor lady's missing. Yeah. Right. And it, like I said, I mean, this is, it, it gets crazy at this point. So now we've got, we've got a missing millionaire heiress. We've got some shady characters. We've got Matlick. We've got Richard Bailey and their connection to Silas Jane and this whole horse murderer ring. What yeah. do you know about it, Lynn? Yeah, the the Chicago horse mafia. And I will add, I think the only person that was looking for her or concerned about her was Richard Bailey, who was supposed to meet her in Florida. Mm-hmm. And so maybe he kept pushing it to find out. And then he, and like we said earlier, he thought maybe she broke up with him. Well, right. And one of the reasons that he thought that maybe she broke up with him is because she figured out that he kind of swindled her on some horses. He figured, or she figured that out. And supposedly, you know, and I give her credit. She's like, wait, what? These horses aren't worth what they're supposed to be worth. So here's an interesting tidbit too, is that this Jane family, they had a number of stables. Well, one of the Jane daughters used to work at the stables. And she is one of the people that told Helen, because she called Helen this lovely, wealthy, older woman. And the daughter often, the Jane daughter often talked to Helen about her struggles in her life. You know, she was a young woman. And she told Helen that the horses that she purchased from Richard Bailey didn't have a lot of value. And so apparently Helen went to Mr. Jane and said, you know, what's going on here? What did, what did you and Richard sell me? And apparently the daughter said that she basically got beat up by her dad. And that from that point forward, she would still tell Helen Brock that she was getting swindled, but she asked Helen not to say anything. And so this is where Helen's like, this is not cool. She talked to some of her friends, some of her trusted associates, and they said, you know, you really need to go to the state attorney about this. And so this is what people think led to her disappearance and the connection to the to the Chicago horse mafia. Yeah, where I think Richard Bailey was a swindler. Oh, for sure. And a gigolo. But I don't think he was a murderer. 
And this is where it gets tied up with that Jane Chicago horse mafia family. The Janes were bad dudes. Like this particular Jane, and I can't think of his name, he actually had his own brother murdered. Silas Jane. Yeah. And he did time. I mean, like he served some time for killing his own brother. And the the brother wasn't that nice to him either. I mean, there was no love lost there. So pretty much what would happen is that these men, they would work together. They had these stables and they would... The, the low level employees at the stables, like the groomsmen, the, you know, the, the everyday riders, the trainers, they would have those people collect scraps of information on would be victims. What kind of car are they driving? Is it late model? Is it a high end car? They would write down their license plates. They would try to get tidbits about, Oh, well, I just got back from the south of France, or they would just try to collect little bits of information. And then they worked with basically a crooked banker and a crooked cop. And they would provide that group with information as to their credit ratings, their addresses. And then these people would drive by the homes of these women. And determine, are they living in a mansion? Are they living in a ranch house? You know, what does the neighborhood look like? So they were able to pay these people who worked at the stables cash bonuses to collect information. And then this group of men would determine which ones they, which women they wanted to go after. And then they would have each other corroborate the stories. So Richard Bailey would be like, hey, sweetie, you know he would know that perhaps they were widowed or they were wealthy or who knows. And then he'd say, Oh, well, talk to my, talk to my buddy over here. And he's going to tell you exactly what's up and that I'm legit. And so they worked together to swindle these women. Yeah. And then, so, and Gina, were these show jumpers? It was a variety. Yeah. There were show jumpers, race horses. It's a, it's kind of a mixture. It is. Of what it, so it was the yeah. horse jumping industry and the racehorse industry. Yeah. Both of, both of those. And one of Richard Bailey's famous quotes he always said was that horses don't have a blue book. And so he right. could completely swindle them. And there was also one of the reasons they got caught. The, the investigator said that. He often tried to look at these murders from a the financial perspective, and he tried to bust them from a financial perspective. Like Al Capone. That's how they put Al Capone in jail was based on the financial yes. swindling and not the murders. Yes. Ironically, we all know about how we have to have Coggins, right? I mean, Coggins is such a pain. Do you have your Coggins? Is your Coggins with you? Well, apparently they were shipping horses from the United States, Chicago area to Canada and back. And one of the vets on staff just pretty much ignored the need for a Coggins. And so that's how they were able to pull some of these people in for questioning because they broke the law that way. And then that led to questioning, which they could collect information on all the other ways that they were doing illegal things and swindling people. Yeah, so this is where the insurance fraud comes in. Mm-hmm. So these horses, they would insure them for whatever, you know, they paid 150000 for this one horse, or they paid $75,000 for this horse, and then it wouldn't perform as they had said it would. So guess what? They'd have it murdered. Oh, and that, usually it was done by electrocution. It won it. There are stories about sometimes they would also use crowbars and break their leg. It literally makes me sick. So here's a little bit of trivia for all of our listeners. 
So uh, there's a horse murder that was actually taught by an owner who was an insurance guy <laughs> how to murder the horse so that it would look like colic and nobody could tell how the horse died. Mm-hmm. So this is going to bring back everybody's memory. So have you heard of Riel Hunter? Well, the name is familiar. Okay. Yeah. So Riel Hunter was, um, she was a, a producer and she worked with the U.S. Senator John Edwards oh. as he was running for, to become the Democratic presidential nominee in 2008. So Riel Hunter, known as originally, her original name was Lisa Drock. Lisa had a very famous show jumping horse that mysteriously died. And she was only 17 years old when this horse died. So it turns out her father, who is an insurance guy, is struggling financially. He needs some cash. He's got a hot girlfriend that he needs to buy a new car for. His daughter, Lisa, famous horse. And Gina, what was that horse's name? It was Henry the Hawk. Henry the Hawk was the horse. So anyway, he dies. And this girl's devastated. She's mm-hmm. 17 years old. This horse was her best friend. And her father did it. Has her horse murdered. It's terrible. Henry the Hawk wasn't just the only one. I mean, they talk about the significant horse murders admitted by the Sandman. It was Henry the Hawk. He was insured for 150000 Condino insured for 200000 Rub the Lamp, 50000 And this one's really sad. Rub the Lamp. I saw an article on that, and I will look it up and make sure it's in our show notes. But this woman said that she was living a life that she couldn't afford. And she admitted to the fact that she had her horse murdered to collect the insurance money because she was trying to keep up with the wealthy. And she says that she has nightmares all the time about what she did to her horse. Yeah, think? Oh, I could never do that. No. So also rub the lamp, Belgian waffle, Rain Man, Emily's Choice, Gondola, Empire, Charisma. He was insured for $250,000 and street, Streetwise. All the other horses besides Streetwise were electrocuted. Streetwise was actually, he, they broke his leg with a crowbar, which is disgusting. So those were the famous ones that the Sandman admitted to, but there were, I'm sure, many others. Yeah. And so Mr. Druck is actually the one that trained the Sandman how to electrocute the horses. That was the first horse that he killed, and then he went on to kill many more by electrocuting them. He considered himself uh, a merciful killer. I mean, he considered himself compassionate. He called himself a compassionate killer. He went to hell. (laughs) He did. He said he only was around for this, the streetwise murder when they did it to, with a crowbar to the leg. He would not do that. In fact, somebody else had to do it for him and he kind of subcontracted, I guess, on that one. But the rest of them he did with electrocution and he describes the scene where he would go into the stall and these horses are so used to people coming into stalls. Humans, absolutely. Vets, farriers, Again, the trust issue. These horses are are used to being handled and around people. And he said, you know, he would talk to them and, and rub their neck and he would he would electrocute them. He would set it up and he would electrocute them. And the advice <sighs> the advice that, that drug gave was that 
make sure you're out of the way when you do it because that horse will drop quick. Totally disgusting. So Gina, all of these horse murders were going on. People were collecting insurance. These rich widows were being swindled out of all of their money. I mean, some of them to the point where there was a fine line. Like some of them, they'd leave them a little bit of money so they wouldn't squeal too loud and they'd just be embarrassed and go away. That's a good but point. But there was one woman that was, she was an alcoholic, it talked mm-hmm. about. And so, I mean, they basically took all of her money and left her with nothing. So these were really bad dudes. The mafia was involved. And Helen was a smart woman. Mm-hmm. Again, they talk about that she was eccentric and this and that. Helen was smart. Helen figured out what was going on. And I imagine when she was having little chats with Richard Bailey, she was probably like, okay, this is shocking. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to let this go on. She mm-hmm. was compassionate about animals. Mm-hmm. So Helen was starting to talk about, you know what, I'm, I'm going to tell somebody about this. This cannot continue. Mm-hmm. So supposedly she'd made an appointment or she was thinking about going to the state. Mm -hmm. So guess what? Richard is probably like, holy shit. Or somebody knows that Helen is about ready to turn them in. Mm -hmm. And she's not just some naive. She's the richest woman that they've swindled so far or tried to, Mm -hmm. because I don't think they didn't get her fortune. Mm -hmm. So this is where, to me, the mafia comes in and they're like, look, we got to shut this woman down. Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So Helen disappears. Mm Mm-hmm. And she's missed, she's disappeared for 20 something years. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a long time before anybody is ever prosecuted for her disappearance. So there was a guy, his name was Joe Plemons and Joe has a long history of being a crook. Right. I mean, how believable is he? I don't know, but he sure has an interesting story to tell. Yes, exactly. So he's about ready to get sent to jail for a lot of years. And so U.S. Attorney Steve Miller is determined to to find out who killed Helen Brock or where her body is, because mm-hmm. we've still not no. found Helen's body even today. Nope. 2021, no body. Right. Absolutely. And so Steve Miller actually befriends one of the women that had been swindled by these guys and... Um, she, she caught on early. And so they didn't get all of her money, but actually Steve Miller and this woman became partners in life. I think they may have even gotten married. Mm-hmm. So Steve Miller is determined to find out what happened to Helen Brock. So he gets this Joe dude mm-hmm. to confess. Joe's like, I know where, I know what happened. I know what happened to her. And it was Richard Bailey. And he, ha- he paid me $5,000 to kill Helen Brock. And so he confesses. So there's not enough evidence to send him to jail or to convict him. There's not enough evidence to convict Richard Bailey based on what Joe Plemons is is squealing. But what they can get Richard Bailey on are many, many, many counts of money laundering mm. and, and that sort of thing, right? Mm-hmm. So Richard Bailey agrees to to confess to some of the financial crimes. Got it. Because if he confesses to the financial crimes, they can't convict him of he doesn't have to go to trial for murder. 
So again, so Richard is just still thinking ahead, trying to Uh keep himself out of jail. I mean, at this point, it's been many years since Helen's gone. So he confesses. So where Steve Miller gets him is that because of the money laundering and the financial crimes, as a sidebar, they can convict him of murder. And Richard doesn't get that. He doesn't know that. So... Anyway, he ends up doing as much time for the financial crimes as he would have done for murder. So Richard Bailey goes to prison. Yeah. And the Jane Mafia folks, at least, I think, 36 of them were convicted for various crimes because this Joe Plemons squeals. So of the 36 people that were indicted and go to jail, back to our little friend Matlick, the house boy, mm-hmm. house man, whatever. <laughs> Guys, he gets nothing. 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 He clearly, I mean, oh, I shouldn't say that. It just seems that he was involved in some way. Oh, I'm e- angry about him. Either directly or indirectly, how can how can he not be involved? Now, and I mean, I'm making assumptions here, Mm -hmm. but he probably had some help or maybe the Jane's family comes to him and he's like, hey, look, we're going to take your boss lady out and you're going to help us or we're going to kill you. Because they would have killed him and his family. Right. And that's what Clement said is that he was involved with the the actual... He's kind of... He changes the story a little bit about whether or not he was directly involved with the murder but he said that, like, in some cases, he said, well, he found, he saw her body in the back of a car in a trunk, and they went to move her body, but she moaned. And so one of the guys said, you either shoot her or we shoot you. So he shot her. And then the other story was that her body went into an incinerator near Gary, Indiana. And that's why we'll never find it. But either way, Richard Bailey, Plemons, the Janes, they're all involved some way, and Matlick basically walked. Did you read the story about him buying a meat grinder right yes. after she disappeared? He bought yes. a meat grinder. And that was one of those rumors around Chicago that he bought the meat grinder to get rid of her body. But then the detectives said it wasn't big enough to actually get rid of a 140-pound woman. So it was a rumor, but then why did he buy the meat grinder? I mean... I mean, your boss is missing. Hey, let's go buy a meat grinder. Yeah, makes no sense. I mean, maybe he thought a meat grinder <laughs> might be a good idea. Right. But I'm going to guess that he actually couldn't grind her poor, fragile oh. body. And I think I'm the most sad that they never found her body. So she's gone. There's no body. No. And we were at a cutting horse event this weekend in eastern Ohio. And the young man, there was this young man that was hanging out at our campfire that night from that area. And I was talking to my group of friends about the Horse Industry Podcast mm-hmm. and that we were going to do this episode. And this 15-year-old boy that works at the farm speaks up and he goes, I've been to the monument. And I'm like, what? So there is a beautiful monument that Helen had built when Frank died. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's for the Brock family. Helen's parents are buried there. Her husband, Frank, is buried there. And her two dogs, Aww, Sugar and candy. candy. But Helen's not there. Helen's body's not there. Nobody knows where Helen is. Nope. I'm sorry, Helen. So I hope that we didn't leave any of our listeners confused. We were. 
Right? I mean, there's so many connections to the mafia and all of the different characters in the mafia. So if you if you enjoyed this episode, Google it, go to YouTube, and go read those stories yourself. Get the book and read it because it's really fascinating. It is. And Lynn and I have spent, uh, we take our job, our role here at the Horse Industry Podcast seriously. And so we want to bring you the information that's as correct as we understand it. And Lynn and I have spent a lot of time reading and sharing notes and trying to wrap our arms around this huge story because it's not linear. It's all over the place. And so like Lynn said, look it up. See what you think. You know, was Matlick responsible or involved? Yes. <laughs> so, Lynn, I'm going to close our episode with kind of the final thoughts from the book that I read about this. And it talks a little bit about the Sandman. In case we missed it, they often called Tom Burns, Tommy Burns, the Sandman. He was the one that pretty much electrocuted these horses. And they pretty much said that if he showed up at a horse show, everyone knew by morning there would be a dead horse. And they called him the Sandman because he put horses to sleep. So I'm going to conclude this episode with what Ken Inglade ended his book with. He says, and I quote, The equine industry likely will continue to operate much as it always has done, with scandals seething just below the surface and bubbling to the top only when the next major investigation commences. One of the most disturbing conclusions to be drawn is that those who had their horses cold-bloodedly assassinated were not acting aberrantly that the industry is saturated with horse owners who see nothing illegal or immoral in having animals murdered simply because they do not perform according to expectations. Tommy Burns isn't the only horse killer out there, the detective commented, and he isn't even the worst. So that's our story this week. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to spending more time with you and sharing stories of our industry. See you next week.